my dad always told me that you only get one name, so invest in it accordingly. And I always thought about that. I thought it was a really good line. Just like you only get one name. Like you can change your companies, you can go bankrupt, but like your name stays with you. Yeah. And so that can either be an asset or it can be a liability. This episode is brought to you by Vimeo. I've been a pro user of Vimeo basically since I started my production company in 2010. Vimeo is for creative professionals like me and I use it in several different ways. For example, it's a place for me to upload my videos with a password for my clients to be able to review and download the work I'm doing for them. Uh, there's no compression, crushing of black colors, or oversaturation like what I get when I upload a YouTube video. My clients get the full 4K resolution HD as it was intended. I also use it to host and broadcast live events. I also use Vimeo for my portfolio, case studies, and it never has annoying pre-roll ads. I can create a customized player and keep people on my landing page so they don't get distracted and go down the rabbit hole watching someone else's stuff. What you may not know about Vimeo is that you can use it if you're an HR or if you own a company. You can put all of those onboarding videos all in one place, a nice, tidy, professional-looking uh, playlist or playboard where people can consume and understand or download all the new training videos all in one place. You could also do the same thing if you teach a course. Imagine putting all your videos behind a paywall, charging for it, and then you know, sending people the link with a password. Need a videographer, creative director, or editor? Vimeo lets you post jobs and find creative professionals. There's a ton more options, so I would suggest checking them out. This episode is brought to you in part by our friends at WeWork. The reason I chose to have an office at WeWork is based a lot on flexibility. I started a decade ago as a one-person company, and now we have a growing team. WeWork has the space and budget for all my needs. From hot desks for one, to a full office setup with multiple people, I can grow, scale up or down whenever I need. I also love the community and other small business and entrepreneurs who work here. It's super collaborative and everyone is in the same boat, willing to help each other out. If you're interested in a tour, visit WeWork.com, search by your city and zip code for a WeWork near you. Now let's get back to our episode. Hi, I'm Alex Ramosi. I own Acquisition.com, which is a portfolio of companies that's $100 million a year. I have a best-selling book. I have a YouTube that some people find interesting. And you are on Behind the Brand with Brian Elliott. Everyone, I'm Brian Elliott. Welcome to another episode of the show. Alex, thanks for having us to your, uh, your home-grown mission control. It's great to be here in Las Vegas. Thank you for having me. I'm very excited. I guess having me and we're having each other, I guess. <laughs> having me on your, your show. Well, I usually ask my guests, how did you get this job? This job? Yeah. Uh, so um, I was a management consultant uh, right out of college. Uh, I did space, cyber, and intelligence for the military, which was um, sounds much cooler than it really was, but I had a top secret clearance. It sounded really good at dinner parties and just about only that. <laughs> um, and you know, one day I looked out uh, from my balcony because I had a really nice place because I could afford it at the time. Um, and I was like, is this it? And I was, you know, in my young twenties. Um, and, you know, at that point I had done everything that I think I was supposed to do. So I was, you know, I did well in school. I, you know, was president of all the clubs, you know, graduated in three years, got the good job. Um, and I realized that it was, I was living, you know, a life for me, um, that my father wanted me to live. And so that was kind of, you know, I went, I, I faltered back and forth for probably a period of six months. Um, of really not wanting this to be my life, but not wanting to let my dad down. And so at some point, the, the thing that kind of pushed me over the edge was I can either, you know, die to myself or I can die to my father. And at the end of the day, you know, I have to survive. So 
I will, <laughs> if I, if I make this decision and he no longer wants to be my dad, then I can accept that. Wow. Is that extreme then? Yes. Wow. Uh, say more about that. Are you an only child? Yeah. Um, so only child raised by a single father, um, Middle Eastern. Um, he was born in Iran and, um, you know, I, I, everything in my life up until that point was really just to make him proud. So I, it was very much a seeking approval, seeking validation kind of drive at that point in my life. Mm-hmm. And so the idea of disappointing him or not getting his approval felt like death. And at that point, I was actually contemplating not living, um, which is why that it really, and it, it's a common theme if you have watched some of my YouTube stuff. Um, mortality has been the single biggest driver and the biggest decisions that I've made in my life. And it has become a more routine process for decision-making for me in general, uh, because I think it, it provides clarity and it provides context to most of the decisions we have, which the vast majority of them don't matter, which is helpful <laughs> in and of themselves. And then, you know, beyond that, it helps me make the decisions that I think removes everyone else from the playbook. Because if you, if you study subjective well-being and how people perceive how they're doing in their own lives, it looks like a smiley face. So seven-year-olds think they're killing life. <laughs> and then it, it drops dramatically between 20 and 30. And then there's still a little bit more of a dip right around 45. That's like when people are their true, <laughs> they, they hate life the most. <laughs> and, then, and then it kind of slowly get, goes up to like 55, 60. And then it shoots right back up again when people see that they're going to die and that life is short and that they can make the decisions without worrying about the ramifications of other people. And some of the people they're worried about are also dead. Right. And so it was using that context for that biggest decision that's been duplicated many times in my life since then, because if I have a good decision-making algorithm, I try and reuse it as many times as I can. Yeah, there's a lot there. Um, (laughs) No, I like it. Um, It's just making me think. I mean, I have watched maybe all of your videos, so I have some context, but let's unpack it for the audience a little bit. So, um, you know, when we're seven, let's... let's, uh, Let's expand that a little bit. I mean, we don't have a care in the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, the artist or the whatever we want to be has not been beaten out of us yet. Right. Uh, no one's told us that we are not what we think we are. Yeah. We're still popping wheelies and climbing trees and falling yeah. out, and that's okay. And then you get to your 20s and 30s, and you, the rubber hits the road a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you've made money, I guess, and if that's your way of validating your work or that's your sign of success, then you're okay. But if not you're kind of hosed. And then in your 40s, I'm guessing uh, you start to have more life experience. 50s, maybe you start caring less what people think. And then um, and then you fast forward all the way to maybe near death. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, and then you really get to a point where you don't care what anyone says and you really boil it down to what's important. And probably I'm guessing that's love, relationships, uh, legacy, and then you're just like, peace out. Is that pretty accurate? I think for most people, yes. Yeah. Uh, for me specifically, the legacy piece less so, um, but I think for most people, yes. And w- why is the legacy piece less important? Um, more so, and I, I, whenever I get into this topic, I think a lot of, like some people get, get sensitive about it, and so I just like to put the disclaimer like, this is not me judging your beliefs, and me stating my beliefs is in no way yeah. a judgment on anyone else. Um, but if you just look at expanding the time horizon over a much longer period of time, if you look at it at, in 10,000 years or 100,000 years or a million years, right? All of a sudden, you know, and the easy way to test this is to go backwards, right? Which is, do you know your great, 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 great grandfather? Probably not. Right. And, and then if you look at it from a how much has somebody achieved standpoint, 
Um, I happen to be in, a, in an interesting situation where my great-great-grandfather was in the ruling class in Iran, and he had 400 children. So he would literally, you know, like ruled and had a lot of wealth. He had a lot of wives to create 400 children, right? Um, and I actually still can't remember his name because I, I, my dad told me one time and I can't remember it. Um, and I've never seen any of the, quote, legacy that I'm sure he felt like he was leaving. And so if that was that level of success and legacy, and only four or five generations later, I don't even remember the man's name, nor do I have any piece of that legacy. Yeah. It seems a little bit irrelevant. Yeah, I, I totally see what you're saying. And that yeah. context matters. I mean, Prince died a couple of years ago, right? Did he? Right. See, I had no idea. Are you serious? Yeah, no idea. I don't follow this. Prince? <laughs> Prince? I thought he was formerly known as. Is he, is, did he get that removed too? I He's now back to being? I think it toggled back to okay. Prince. Uh, and that then, unfortunately, he, I think he, he overdosed, accidental exactly. overdosed, um, and he passed. And, uh, you know, one of the greatest musicians of all time, and I didn't think about him until you just said this. Yes. So what chance do I have? Yeah. <laughs> I'm screwed. <laughs> yeah, and I think on a long enough time horizon, we're all screwed. And I think in some ways people find that incredibly disheartening. But an equal opposite is if you... You can't find it both disheartening and also not freeing because all of the decisions that we're making that are not for ourselves or what are, or are, are subject to change that we feel pressure from, whether that be society, societal, I'll put quotes there because that's a big word, um, or family, friends, expectations that we perceive other people to have of us. Um, if, you can, if you can just relinquish all of those chains, I think it's incredibly freeing. And um, I choose to live that way. Yeah, I also or think... Or try to. <laughs> I yeah. still definitely feel it. No, that's fair. That's fair. And I think also um, that may help us... That advice is good because it helps us live in the moment. Because it, you know, even if you believe in something after, that's still in the future. Yeah. And there's a question mark because no one actually knows right. with, you know, with knowledge. Yeah. Uh, at least someone with a pulse yeah. doesn't know what happens. Yeah. Or if something happens. So you might as well live in the present, make the best of it. Yeah. An interesting one um, that I thought through around that was um, a lot of us, not a lot of us, all of us, have 100% experience uh, not being alive. <laughs> right? It was before we, were, before we were born, we were not alive. And so we know what that was like. There was nothing um, that we can recollect. Right. And so I would imagine that that's the closest experience that we can have to not being alive yet again. Mm-hmm. Um, which to me is not that frightening. Yeah. And it is freeing, you're right, because it's, it's both uh, humbling to know yeah. that you don't matter yeah. in the grand scheme of things, but at the same time, um, you, you matter infinitely if you just focus on the present and the, the mark that you're going to leave here and now. I, I, I contemplated, I had to die to my father or die to myself, and I realized that I, I would rather die to him, um, which pretty much ended up happening. Um, and so my fears were relatively justified. Um, he was not in support of the things that I wanted to do. I ended up quitting that job, sold everything I had, packed my car, went to California because that's where I thought the land of fitness opportunity was because that was the only thing I really enjoyed. Um, uh, mentored under a guy for a few months to try and at least learn the ropes. Started my first facility, slept on the floor for the first nine months, which was a very terrible experience for me. And, and timestamp the age for me now? You I was are... 23. Okay. I so... left at 22 and I turned 23 two weeks after my gym opened. Got it. So you graduated early, you got that dream job, and then you bailed. Yep. Yep. Two yeah. years. And that was really at the time, um, and all of this kind of, it was at the uh, a splitting point where I had done two years, and the kind of career path traditionally is like two to four years of 
management consulting, and then you go back to an Ivy League for your GMAT, and then from there you go into you know you can you can go do investment banking, you can do private equity, you can do you know some of the bigger white collar jobs. But um, it was I just didn't I didn't want more of what I had, mm-hmm. um, and so. I thought that I would have a better shot taking two hundred thousand dollars in two years, which is what the you know economic equivalent of what the degree was, um, and starting something on my own. And I figured I would learn more in the first two years, and with that money, and maybe even have a business by the end of that period of time that made an equivalent amount of money compared to what I would have had as a job offer. Let me ask you. I talk a lot about signals on this show to other people. In my personal life, I've I've had signals that were subtle. Um, some more overt, the subtle ones I missed and then had, I had to learn later. But how did you, what signals did you get? I mean, you're saying like, I wasn't feeling it, but like, so where was your motivation? Because I see you as this hustler, this go-getter, this, you know, this um, salesperson, you know, who just is all about gobbling up new opportunities. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, you've... It, it transcends beyond that now, but like at first, it sounds like you were just all about the go-get. But how did you know, like you graft, you drifted into fitness because you were into maybe, you know... I mean, at first I was driven there. by fear. Okay. It was all fear. Fear of failure, fear of disappointment, fear of other people's judgment. Right. Um, what did your dad end up saying? Did he say, good luck stupid. with you? No, he thought he was stupid. He thought I was wasting my life. Yeah, and wasted a degree that he had spent money on, and yeah. wasted a good job opportunity that he had set up for me. All these things. Right. In his defense, uh, did he immigrate here? Yeah. Okay. So in his defense, hundred percent. Right. You, you, and I just want to tell the audience so that yeah. they, they're not like, but 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 but. It's like, you 100%. know, if you have You're justified in saying that. Yeah. If you escape from a country where there's trauma mm-hmm. um, and impending danger, and your son squanders an opportunity, yeah. you might get. A little anxious about that. 100%. I mean, my dad came here with $1,000, you know, and a, and a medical degree. Yeah. And then built everything. Didn't even speak English. Right. So I can, I can, I mean, I think Gary Vee said this, but I think what he did was harder than what I've done. Like, I got to, I got to stand on his shoulders. Okay. You know. In what way? I mean, I speak English. <laughs> okay. Sure. You know, like, just the basics. Like, I speak English. I went to a good school. Um, uh, you know, I... Just all the, the support infrastructure, known and unknown, that was around me yeah. um, to you know to be successful. Yeah, I think it's healthy to recognize your privilege. Yeah. Uh, but at the same time, you know, it came with lots of baggage too. Interesting. Okay. And so you had signals which were mainly fear-based. Yeah, and I I mean the, the biggest thing that made the decision for me, I would say, I had the logical decision, and then I had the emotional decision. The emotional decision was, um, I could, I don't want to do this. This is not the life I want to lead. Um, I am not happy doing this every day. I would prefer to not be alive if this is what my life will be continuously. And I was like, well, if that is what, if I would prefer to not be alive, then that kind of opens up my decision calculus. And what was it, I'm trying to put my finger on, what, what, what was it that made you happy? Was it just the freedom to do what you want? I didn't know what made me happy. I knew it was not making me happy. Okay. Yeah. So I think that's another important lesson too, if I can just extract them, yeah. which is one, you know, I'm sure a lot of people watching, they feel the same kind of family pressure. Um, they want to be what other people expect them to be yeah. if, you know, if that's who you are. And that's totally normal. Um, but we should always remember, you know, the, the context in which that advice is given. could be given through the lens of a certain, um, they lived that cer- a certain lifestyle, a certain time frame. Totally. Um, 
But also, you know, you said um, it's a process of elimination sometimes, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Like you don't always know. I, the reason I think about this is so I've got a son who is in eighth grade, mm-hmm. and sometimes I see him look looking very serious, and I'm like, "Son, what's up? How are you? you know, wh- how are you feeling?" Can't be that bad. <laughs> it's kind of like you know, you can yeah. see kind of the face kind of going in, and you see him in deep thought, and like, "What are you thinking about right now?" He's like. I don't know what my college major is going to be. Yeah. I'm like, bro, yeah. you're in eighth grade. Yeah. Why are you thinking about that right now? Yeah. But like, I think that's a thing. Whether you're young or middle age, yeah. you're trying to figure out what you want to be when you grow up. You're trying to have it all figured out. Because yeah. we don't, it seems like we don't like uncertainty. Yeah. But I think your message, if I'm hearing you, is Sometimes you have to try it on for size to see if it fits or not. Yeah. And you get it on, and you're like, well, I thought that dream job was going to be like perfect, but turns out, you know, it's tight in the crotch. <laughs> you know, it's yeah. like, I, I need something different. Mm-hmm. And I think giving yourself permission to do that. And, you know, as a side to what you were saying about my dad, like, education saved his life. Like, he was only able to leave the country because he was educated. And so there's very deep roots there, and I can appreciate that. But for this context or for my life, it just wasn't appropriate. Right. And when we did come to terms later, um, the only time he's ever apologized to me in my life, um, he said, after his apology, he qualified, um, and said, but to be fair, in my time, I would have been right. <laughs> oh, absolutely. And he would have been. It's yeah. just not the same time. Right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, and yeah, absolutely. It wasn't that it was inappropriate. It was just out of context and it and didn't necessarily translate to this new life and new opportunities you had. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's so important. I, I can't imagine how many people are sort of, you know, suppressed to the point of their parents or the people that have influence around them put on them. Yeah. Or sometimes it's on ourselves. Yeah, it's most, I mean, mostly. I, I love the saying, you know, in our 20s, we're concerned about what everyone thinks about us. In our 40s, we don't care what anyone thinks about us. And in our 60s, we realize that no one was thinking about us to begin with. Right. <laughs> and I just, I just feel like that's, I mean, who else have you thought about today besides yourself? Probably not. I mean, you have your kids, which is an extension of yourself. But you know what I mean? Like, yeah. Not a lot. And so most people are like that. And, you know, a lot of it, like, we have a lot more leeway than I think we give ourselves credit for. And I think the more that I have now, you know, I'll say accomplished with quotes, in, in material success, the more I am excited about the things that I can do. And that was why the opening of the book was like, there are no rules. Mm-hmm. And it just took me a very long time to realize that. And I continue to unlearn rules that I thought existed, yes. you know, as I continue to you know, go on this journey. Yeah, I love that idea of unlearning. Yeah. I think we all just try and go back to being like we were when we were children. Like if, like, just because when, when you're a child, you're purely present, right? You're just present in the moment. Yeah. and. I, I, I don't like the word happy very much. Um, I prefer using joy because you can be you can mourn joyfully, mm-hmm. right? Because it's it's a it's a it's internal rather than ha- happiness, which I feel is more like happenstance. It's more from external, and so um, you know what are the things that bring me joy? What are the things that I find you know find joy in? Um, and I think for anyone who's who's listening, it's a much harder question to answer. What are the things that bring me joy, than answering the question? What are the things I hate? And it's easier to correct those first. <laughs> You're like, well, I hate my job and I hate my relationship and I hate the city. Okay, those are all very changeable. And a lot of times you get there by, uh, by inversion. Well, if I wanted to destroy my life, I wanted to have the worst life possible, what would I do? And then taking all those things that you would do to really destroy your life and make your life miserable and then reverse them. 
it's a much easier way to solve the positive psychology equation, in my opinion. Yeah, I love that. I, and I'm remembering this, this Picasso quote, which is, I think he said, everyone is born an artist, yeah. right? And then eventually we, we uh, you know, get convinced that we're not. Yeah, yeah. And we have to really just strip away and get, you know, get back to basics. And I'm using art metaphorically too. It's like what you yeah. do at acquisition.com or what you yeah. did in the fitness industry or what I'm doing with film, you know, this can be considered our art. 100%. Mine's not that great, but, um, you know, everyone can be an artist and perfect their art, you know. I love that. Um, okay, so you get to uh, fitness. You're the uh, apprentice to yep. a master. Yep. Uh, you're not swole yet, I'm guessing. I was less swole. You're getting there. I was actually, I had already, um, I was, you know, I was competing at that point. So I was... Okay. Uh, but I was a strength competitor, so I was very strong for my body weight. Deadlifts, that kind yeah, of thing. as yeah. a powerlifter. Um, and then I started my my gym, uh, and that was the first day that fitness became second in my life. So up until that point, I was fitness obsessed, and everybody I worked with was like, "Dude, you should quit this job and start a gym. It's all you talk about all day." And it yeah. was what I was obsessed with. Yeah. And so maybe like my go getting was really directed towards that, and I figured this was the only thing that I did. I did know that I liked that, and so I was like, "Okay, I'll do more of that." Yeah. And then when I started the gym, I realized that I was doing none of that. I was starting a business, which had nothing to do with, I mean, insofar as I was selling fitness, there was a component of it, but the vast majority of my day had nothing to do with fitness whatsoever. Um, but I did find out that I liked business more than fitness. Yeah. And that was, and that's where I think that there's been a lot of luck in my life where, you know, I just so happened to really enjoy the thing that happens to be rewarded by the marketplace with a lot of money. You know, like, I, that is where I feel like there's, there's a lot of luck that has lied up in my life and it's in indirect ways like that. I just happen to love this. And so, I, and because of that, I will do it for a long period of time for more than most people and enjoy learning about it and talk to people in my free time and do everything I can because it's just the thing I like. Mm -hmm. And it just so happens to be rewarded monetarily well. Yeah, and also, uh, you know, the, the physical uh, benefits from it, right? I mean, you can literally, you put in the work you can see the result, right? It's one of those very empirical, yeah. right? It's very measurable. <laughs> right, but it's like, yeah, it, it's, and I think I've heard you talk a lot about choosing the right market. Like if you're not in something that can scale, um, you might want to re rethink that if scalability or um, profitability is your goal, perhaps you're, you're not in a market that can scale. Yeah. And we can talk about that in a minute. Okay, so you, uh, you you build it, you build the, um, the gym. your your yeah. repertoire. Yeah, um, and and then you start acquiring gyms. What are you doing? No, so I um, so I opened up uh, four more locations. So I had five total on in Southern California. Was it under the umbrella of this? So I had four under that umbrella, and then the fifth one I did on my own. So I ended up starting the gyms on my own. <laughs> Nine months in, I I let two partners in, for lack of a better term. Um, I sold two-thirds of the equity in my business for basically nothing. Um, and at that point, I was already making 20000 a month take-home. Uh, and they said that it wasn't valuable. Um, and in some ways, they were right. And in other ways, they were not. Um, either way, that is what happened. Uh, and then from there, uh, I stayed in that partnership. I ended up staying in partnership with one of the guys. We didn't work well with the other guy. Mm -hmm. um, and then... After that guy was no longer in the partnership, I disagreed with the the other partner over time. Not on a personal level, we actually got along really well, um, but just business strategy wise, I wanted to be a premium price leader. He wanted to be the low cost leader, yeah. 
And so that it was just, it yeah, just, yeah. and so we ended up just meeting in the middle, which was a very mediocre business. Um, and so I start, I wanted to start my own facility with kind of like my own credo. Um, and that was the fifth gym, which was body force Lake forest. Um, and that gym did really well. Um, and then I, I made I, I, that gym I acquired, uh, compared to the other four, the other four I started this one I acquired and I acquired for no money down, um, for $50,000 over a year. And so I basically took the whole gym over and then had to pay $4,000 a month to the owner. And I made $50,000 in the first month. Um, and so I was like, this is great. Um, and that's when I realized that I was, I'd made so much money launching and opening gyms and then I didn't even really care as much about the running afterwards. I mean, I knew how to do it. I just liked the launches. They were more exciting. Mm -hmm. And so I had this idea for a model where we'd fly around and just like launch and fill other people's gyms. And so, uh, this is right around the time that I met my, my now wife. Um, so I pitched her the idea on our first date and asked her to quit her job, um, which was obviously the, the most reasonable thing to do. Uh, when, you, when you're talking to the top sales rep at 24 Hour Fitness, which she was at 23. Um, and so it's like, listen, this may not work out, but we'll make a ton of money together. You should, you should work with me. Um, and, uh, and she didn't say yes. <laughs> so I went and I launched three gyms. I came back five weeks later um, and I asked her to help me process the contracts. Uh, so we ended up processing like 120 grand in an hour and she looked at me and she was like, is this the thing that you started? And I was like, yeah. She's like, is it legal? <laughs> that was her first question. Is it legal? Um, and I was like, yeah, it's legal. And she was like, can you teach me how to do it? And I was like, yeah. She's like, all right, I'm in. And so that was when she quit her job. And then she and I started launching these gyms together. We did that for almost a year. Um, it's still a very, very, very hard time for, for me financially. Um, mostly cause I was just way, I had so many poor decisions I was paying off at all times. Um, I then, uh, ended up saying, you know what, I'm going to sell my gyms and transition during this period of time. I got a DUI head on collision. My mother went to the hospital. That's why I actually did those first gyms cause they were all around the hospital cause I wanted to keep busy. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, there was, it was, there was a lot of bittersweet during this whole period of time. Like that processing contracts was after I came back from like the hospital with my mom. So it's just like, just a lot of different like things I was going through. Yeah. Um, but, uh, and, and selling the, the partnership that I had there, uh, was really hard for me. Again, it was like this, you know, need for validation and approval. And I had noticed that over my life until I solved this problem, it kept reoccurring, which was, I always wanted to find father figures. And so, the guy that I did the apprenticeship with, like at the very beginning of the story I was saying earlier, like I ended up getting in a really weird uh, financial situation with him, which didn't end well. Um, we ended up making up years later. It was, it was fine, but like there was a long period of time that we were estranged. Mm. Um, both of those guys came in, very father-like figure feelings. I got in a partnership with another. Like, so I kept repeating the same mistake until I, I had to learn. I was like, you keep doing this, so yes. maybe you should stop. Um, and I looked at my track record and all the businesses that I had only owned myself, I made a ton of money in. And all the businesses that I partnered with, I had made no money and lost money in. And I was like, huh, maybe I should do more of that. And so that was, uh, so at this point, you know, we're launching the gyms and whatnot. And uh, I, <laughs> I sold all the gyms and entered another partnership uh, with one of the guys that I had launched. And he's like, dude, I'll come behind you. You shouldn't be giving up all the backside, like back end of the, of all these launches. Like I'll come behind you and fill the, you know, and, and manage the gyms. And that way every gym you launch, you own. So by the end of the year, you can own 12 gyms and you can just launch them and fill them. He said, but I have some financial, you know, issues, nothing big. I was indicted once, no big deal. <laughs> um, big misunderstanding. 
Uh, and I was like, of course. And he's like, so you'll have to sign everything, front of the money, all that stuff, but we'll split it. And I was like, sure, of course. Why, why wouldn't we? So I sold all my gyms, put all the money into the bank account for the new business that we were going to start. You know where this is going. Um, sold 400 people, which is a massive launch for a small gym uh, in a matter of like six weeks. Woke up, all the money was gone. Um, he was like, that was my half of the profits. I was like, we haven't made any profit. We started the gym with yeah. the money. Um, he was like, well, the fact that you spent it is your fault, not mine. Mm-hmm. Um, and so like that, all the money I had done from all my gyms at this point in four years of my life was gone. Um, and I was saddled with a gym that had no money in it yeah. with 400 members and payroll that I didn't have money to pay for. And I couldn't sell people because if I sold them, I would have to continue to fulfill them. And I didn't want to be in, I didn't want to own more gyms. I just sold all my gyms. Yeah. <laughs> and so, um, at that point I sent Layla to go launch a gym in Hawaii. She crushed it. She did a hundred thousand in, in collected. And that was enough to fund all the refunds mm-hmm. for all of the members to gracefully, which was not graceful, exit the facility. Yeah. Um, And that's when she said, I'll, um, wow. Yeah. I mean, talk about signals, missed signals, um, learning lessons the hard way, (laughs) brutal. Um, but also, I mean, story of my life, I could, I could talk about similar things where I just, I had literally had to get beat up and, and continue making the same mistakes. So very relatable. Um, but oof. Okay, yeah. so, wow. I'll speed the rest up. So yeah, no, we, you're good. We, uh, there's just so much, it's so uh, fascinating. There's, we're like not even, there's way more bad that happens after that. Um, so, but the, the thing is, is I'm telling this, in, it's all, all this happened in like a nine month period. So this was just insane. And so like my mother getting sick, the ending the partnerships, the new partnership, the money get, getting taken, my DUI head on collision, so the head-on collision actually was the next big catalyst for me because that was yet again, I was faced with my own mortality and I, it, it re, reprioritized things again. It was like, hey, idiot. Reset. Yeah. And so I, at that point, I had a partner that I had two marketing agencies with, by the way, started that on the side, um, a chiropractor and a, and a dental agency. I had my five gym locations with a different partner. I had now the one current location that I had started with the new partner, mm-hmm. right? And I had the launch business where we're launching, turning around and doing launches. And I'm 26. Yeah. I'm imagining, you know, those plate spinners. Yeah. You've got at least nine plates yeah. going. I was drinking a half a bottle of Johnny Walker Black every night to function, not to, like, not to get drunk, to not, to feel back to not being stressed. That was the only thing. Yeah. And, um, like, some people have, like, like, I would never have called myself an alcoholic because it was like I still function fine. I never was drunk at work or anything like that. I just, every night I would just drink that to like breathe. Yeah. Um, that was your escape. Yeah, it was. It was very much escape because I wasn't handling the things that I needed to handle. And so I had a coach at that time who was more really more of just a therapist. And he said, Alex, your stress is literally going to kill you. And so that was right after I had the, the DUI and the head-on collision. And so he said, you need to change stuff. Like, what are you afraid of? You, you almost died, so fuck it. <laughs> yeah. And so I ended that partnership. I ended the partnership with the agencies. I, I t- Believe it or not, even after the money was taken, I was still in a partnership with him. Because um, I was like, maybe he's right. Like, 
I knew I knew that it was fraudulent when I showed him the financials and highlighted everything and was like, there's no other money that was here and he didn't want to look at it. And that's when I was like, oh, he he doesn't actually think that I took the money. He he was making a reason up. So so anyways, I got out of all of that stuff. I lost all my money and then I was back at zero. And this was now this was November of 16. So I'm now three or four years later from me opening the gym on the floor. So a lot of this stuff happened quickly. Um, at that point, uh, we went to go launch a gym because Layla was like, hey, I quit my job for this. So, you know, can we like still do the thing you said you were going to do? Yeah. And so we, we realized that, okay, I'm going all in on the gym launch business. Um, and I went to go launch this gym in San Diego. And this guy had reached out to me because he'd like followed me because I had made some content about gym stuff, not much. Um, and he said, I've got a newborn kid. I really need this money. Like, let me sell for this, this gym. And he was, le- it just so happened to be 15 minutes from his house. Like, I had gyms all over the nation that I was doing one at a time and he happened to reach out to me and it happened to be next to his house. So I figured, all right, maybe someone's looking out for this guy. Okay, cool. Sell it and it'll give me time to get all the materials ready so we can launch way more gyms next month. He crushed it, does $100,000 in sales, which was like a big launch. Um, And I owed him $22,000 in commissions. After Layla's launch and paying all the refunds and everything, I had $23,000. So I paid him the 22 and the $100,000 that I made from the sales never came because the processor, because of the refunds from the gym before, uh, shut us down and said, there's a regular activity, there's too many complaints, blah, 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 which was the reason why I shut a gym down right after, like, right. And so they said, we're gonna hold on to this 100 grand. And so I now had $1,000 total. During this period of time, before I knew that we weren't gonna be able to get the money, Layla had told her six best friends to quit their jobs and join us at Gym Launch. And so I find out on Christmas Eve at Layla's parents' house where I'm meeting them for the first time that I had, one, lost all my money. Two, all of her friends had quit their jobs and are gonna start selling for us the next, on the 26th, so two days later. And on that 26th, 3,300 a day was gonna start getting debited from my account because I didn't have the money that was supposed to be coming for that 100 grand. Mm-hmm. And so I sat Layla down and was like, I pulled the credit card out and I was like, I have a $100,000 limit on this card. And it was from all my gyms. So it was like my master like working capital card. I was like, but I want you to know that like you can leave now and we're cool. Like I won't judge you like carte blanche. You can leave. And we're um, like, I, I was like, this has a very low likelihood of working. This is probably like a 10 to 15% shot that this actually works. And that's when she said, I'll, um, she's like, I'd sleep with you in Overbridge if it came to that. And so that was when, that was when I knew that like we were like, she was it, she was the one, she's with me, you know, ride or die. Like she's the girl I'm going to marry. Yeah. And so, um, what a moment. Yeah, it was, it was great. <laughs> it was actually, honestly, I felt numb at the time, um, from everything, but later I can appreciate it. Um, so we started the start, the, the account started getting debited 3,300 a day. Here's the catcher. We started doing, you know, uh, what was it? We were doing, we did like 200 grand the first month. So that's 7,000 ish a day. Mm-hmm. This is, this is where it gets hairy. I didn't have a processor. So we're getting $7,000 a day in contracts that I cannot process. Mm-hmm. And the money's still coming out. Right. Right. At the end of the month, I get one processor turned on after calling every single figure. I was calling friends up like, Hey, can you process contracts? I'll give you 10%. Just send me the money. after." And they're like, this sounds really sketchy. No. And they were right to not do that. Yeah. And, um, so processor gets turned on at the end of the month, but they said, Hey, it's a new business. So we'll give you a $50,000 limit. I was like, dude, I need 200 grand like yesterday. 
They're like 50,000 is the limit. So I called the guy up and he said, well, it's per month. So, and I got it like two days before the end of the month. He said, so you can run 50 grand today. And in two days you can run 50 grand again. Okay. So I was like, okay. And that's what I did. I ran 50 grand and then two days after I ran 50 grand, which was enough to cover the hundred thousand dollars, the 3,300 a day that was coming out on the card. So I made literally, I made like a hundred dollars in profit <laughs> that first month. And then he got two more turned on, so I got, to, got up to like 180 or so, and then, and then he doubled the 50 to 100, so we had 200,000 in limit the next month. So we hit the full 200 the next month, but we're still billing from shit from last month while still making and still playing catch up. But we made like a little bit of profit that month, so I was like, okay, I think I'm in the clear. So I think we might have, but wait, there's more. <laughs> and so now we're going into March, so this is January is the first full month, December, uh, uh, Fe- January's first month, February is, is when we're started. We're playing catch up on the processing. March, March comes, and I just wrote the story out in my book, so all the details are fresh. Um, we we get the call. Layla comes up to me. I'm like thinking life is good. I think we're out of the out of everything, and she's like, she's like white, and I was like, what's going on? And she turned her laptop to me, and there was just just scrolls of, of negative transactions on our account. And I was like, what am I looking at? She was like, these are all refunds. I was like, again, how? I, we already did all the refunds from that gym. Like we can't, they can't refund again. Like we already gave all the, because I thought it was from the gym from like way back when we, that I had to shut down. She was like, no, one of the gym owners that we launched got up on his chair and told everyone to refund. He just said, go home. I can't deal with all this. Cause we had taken his gym from 70 to 270 clients in a month. It was three, I mean, it was just, it was just unfat. The amount of infrastructure that's required to handle that, yeah. which I hadn't thought through. I was like, you want A plus sales and marketing? We will sell, we will sell yeah. your gym. We'll blow Fire your gym up. Yeah. yeah. And so that's, that's what we did. And then he refunded everything. Yeah. Oh. And, um, unbelievable. It was, it, so that just blew all the profit from the, the month before. And, uh, that was horrible. Um, but then I was like, okay, one off circumstance happens not a big deal like we'll get through it we'll just do more launches it's fine two weeks later she comes back again and she's like it's happening again i was like what are you talking about she's like the refund thing i was like he can't refund like we no one can refund like we already gave all the money back what do, what do they want and um she said no two gyms uh told the clients to refund and then buy the same services from them for half price since we had left after selling so it's like someone comes in we sell them a membership you know for yeah. the way we did it we do a six-week program for like five or 600 bucks, they would pay for it. We'd keep that money for the marketing, sales, hotel, rental car, everything, ad spend, commissions. That's what we'd keep and whatever was left was the profit, right? After that, that gym got all those customers for free to convert. Yeah, so it's like you got value. really, yeah, you got really high qualified customers because these aren't trial customers. They're paying, you know, 600 bucks to be there. So like they care, they'll show up, they'll follow instructions. And you should, if you're doing it right, convert 70% on the back end. So like, you just got to wait. You got to provide fulfillment for six weeks. And most gyms have fixed costs, not a lot of variable costs. And so they didn't really need to staff up that much. Um, not, not a ton, right, to handle that. And, and so these guys were just like, you know, what would be cooler is if we just told them all to refund and then we got half the money. Right. And then that gives them a reason. And, Slightly and they had, unethical. Yeah, and they had the relationship with the clients. I didn't. But I held the bag for the processing. So anyways, they... Uh, they, they did that, and that's when, so we had 150000 in refunds. And again, I have no money. Um, wow. And so it was like this impossible situation where I looked at Layla, and I was like, okay, if you fly out and I fly out, we can both do 100000 and we can make sure the gyms don't do anything stupid, and we can cover the one fifty. And I just remember this other thing that she said to me, which was she was like, Alex, like, 
we can't sell our way out of this. Like, if we do that, we're just going to create more, like, there's going to be more refunds, like, the amount of refunds is just going to keep going up. And so I didn't, I really didn't know what to do. Um, and so at that point, um, she had this little side business because she still like, she still wasn't sure how things were going to work out. So she was doing like three or 4000 a month from all her personal training clients that she had transitioned to online. And as I'm trying to like think of every possible idea under the sun, including like me being a prostitute, it didn't matter. I just was like, whatever I can make to so get 150 grand. Yeah, I didn't. I mean, but it, was, it wasn't even 150 grand in revenue. It'd be 150 grand in profit that I had to come up with. Otherwise, her friends weren't going to get paid, right? And so you can feel the stress. And so, and so I, um, I, so I, I sit her down. I was like, wait, so three or 4,000 a month. I was like, what's your cost in that? She was like, nothing. It's like, okay, what if we blow your business up? Forget my business. Clearly I suck. <laughs> it's like, what if we just blow you up? Um, she's like, really? I was like, yeah. Like, and so she said yes. And I spent I, pretty much every waking moment after that writing the best sales copy of my entire life, writing an amazing ad campaign and launched everything within like 48 hours. And then within a few days, we were doing um, a thousand bucks a day of just her selling over the phone with no fulfillment. It was just like online programs for her weight loss program. And I was like, this could work because if I get the eight sales guys that we had at the time to come not have to travel anymore, they'd all do a thousand bucks a day. We do 8,000 a day. After commissions, we'd have about 150 grand. Yeah, without the overhead and all that. Right, yeah, yeah, exactly. And I was like, and no gym owners, no one's going to refund because no, no one's telling them to refund. And so um, that was the plan. And so... I told her the plan. She was good with it. And so we had eight gyms that were supposed to launch the next month. So I called those guys up and I was like, hey, we're not doing it anymore. Change the direction, whatever. Yeah. And the first guy tells me this long story about how his friend had referred him and that we had saved his friend's gym and how um, he was going to lose his house and that he had refinanced everything. He'd maxed out all of his cards. He'd quit his job, spent two years not making any money for the gym and that he needed this. Sob story. Okay. Yeah. And I said, cool, not really my problem. Because like, Everything that happened to this point, I was like, my level of give a fuck was very low. Uh, <laughs> and, so, and so I said, sorry, man. And he's like, can you, can you at least show me what you did at my friend's place and I'll just do it, try and do it myself? Right. And at this point, I needed money, right? And so uh, I was like, maybe. Um, but I also didn't want to go create this whole thing because I knew the value of focus. I'd learned that lesson at this point. Um, and so... I said, fine, I'll show you how to do it, but I'm not going to fly out there to save your ass if you can't sell. And he said, no, that's fine, it's fine. And so he said, how much? And at the time, I picked the highest number I could possibly think of because I thought I wanted him to say no so I could move on with my life. Yeah, what's your IP worth? Yeah. yeah. And so I said, $6,000. Now, mind you, this is the someone's doing $100,000 in every single gym we launched in a month. And um, he's like, deal. And I, I still remember, I looked at the phone and I was like, holy shit. I, I, I can't... And then I just like, cool, what card do you want to use? <laughs> and um, I wrote it down on a napkin and, they, you know, finished the phone call. I went over to Layla and I was like, holy shit. I was like, this guy just paid $6,000 for like all of our like sales scripts and all this stuff. Yeah. Uh, how soon did you realize you'd left a ton of money on the table? Well, this, this was the moment. <laughs> and so, at, so I, I was like, I think, I think there's something here. And so I went and called the rest of the guys that were supposed to launch the next month. There's seven more guys. And... And, you know, next guy, how much? Eight grand. Next guy, how much? Ten grand. Next guy. And then I did $60,000 in sales that day. Yeah, you've seen how elastic it was. Yeah. And there's... Yeah. And I saw at 60 grand in one day. And, it was, I mean, it was a day that changed my life. Yeah. And so that's when I, I was like, I think we're still in the gym business. I think we're just doing it wrong. And she's like, so we're not doing the weight loss thing? I was like, I guess not. I think we're going to do this. She's like, well, how are we going to get new customers? I was like, well, we don't need to worry about that yet because... I'm going to call the 30-something other gyms that we did the launches for and be like, hey, remember how I filled your gym up? 
want to see how I did it. And within the next month, I think I did uh, like four, like, I don't remember the cash collected. Um, I think we collected 200,000 in cash, but we ended up doing like four or $500,000 in sales. So let me ask you more about this system. Yeah. Was it like written down somewhere? Yeah, it was my whole gym opening system. It's like how I would do these launches. Did you have videos in like a module? Okay, watch Everything. step one, two, three. So, so the way that I had structured this, the, the old gym launch version is we would fly out to do these turnarounds, well, right? I have more questions about this. Oh, because, sorry, yeah. Well, I wanna ask you because I'm sure that there's a lot of people who want to, to create modules or you yeah. know learning modules or teaching modules, mm -hmm. whether they are doing it in-house for them people or they wanna learn or maybe create their own. The like, courses are a big thing, right? Yeah. Um, but, but so like were these underproduced, well-produced, overproduced, like the videos, was it like? Mixture of both. Okay. Yeah, because I had hired a guy to do like really professional videos when I did the original launch, like okay. the old school one, that walked the gym owners through like, here's how to service these customers. Okay. Here's how to do nutrition consults. Here's how to sell supplements. Here's how to sell the membership on the back end. And those were all like really nicely done professional videos. Yeah. And so I had everything there already for the back end. The sales training, I had already trained my sales guys with. So that training already existed. The yeah. scripting and that sales training was brutal and fucking awesome. Yeah. Still, like, it's interesting because when you make a training with the intention of like, someone has to go through this and sell shit on the other side and it's my money on the line, it's different than when you try and make a course on sales. Right. Because people try and make a course on sales and justify the cost that they charge someone for it. Mine was an hour long training that taught someone how to fucking close. And it was this particular product at this price point for a gym. So it was super specific selling, right? Here's how you set the chairs up. Here's how the office needs to look when they walk in the door. This is a joke you make. This is how you do the tour. When they sit down, make sure they sit up on the weight. Make sure they look at the weight. If they cry, they buy. Make sure they sit down. Like, you know, you do the whole thing, right? And it was all methodical, strategic. I'd done 4,000 of these. Like, I knew, like, we know this conversation like that. I could still do it. Yeah. Still. <laughs> and, um, and so anyways, all that stuff was documented. The only thing that wasn't documented was just the ads and the landing pages. And I said to show how to place them. Yeah. So I, all I had to build was just that. And we're just talking about Facebook ads or yeah, Google ads. ads. Yep, it was Google and Instagram. Or sorry, uh, Facebook and Instagram. Yeah. Yep. And we already had the ads. They didn't even make them. I was just like, this is the ad. And they would use my video because I knew my videos worked. So it's just like, boom, post this. Goes to this page, which is a copy paste of the page that I already made. Change the name of the city, right? Like, that's it. I was like, and when they, like, here's how you work the leads, which was the sales training the guys had. Here's how you sell them, sales training the guys had. And then the back end, they already had the training for it. So it was proven. It was already there. No I just brand. didn't have the ads part, like, documented. So I documented that. Yeah. And um, I sent it out. I called the other guys. We crushed it. And then, and then, and then the average gym that, of those first, like, 30 or 40 that bought, um, did $30,000 in additional collected cash not membership, not like contract value, like cash collected in their first 30 days. So you were a hero? Overnight. They were just like... Yeah, overnight success. <laughs> yeah. and, then, um, and then, I mean, as soon as that happened, they are like, what else do you have? And I was like, well, glad you asked. You know, I have, I have my three-year licensing where I'll give you all the rest of the things that I used to run, run and scale my gyms. Yeah. And so that, was, that became Gym Legacy, which is the back end of Gym Launch, which was the two programs that we had, front end and back end which fundamentally is actually exactly how I did weight loss programs. We had front end and back end. We have a defined end program. We sell into continuity, same process. Just, they were just added zeros. That's all it was. Um, and there was no, the, the cost of goods was significantly lower because it's licensing. You know I mean? Licensing materials, licensing ads, licensing pages. It's not, you know. Yeah, and, and if I can just point out what I'm hearing too is you got rid of partners. Yeah, right. I'm not against them now. I, I, I had to learn, I had to learn how to do business on my own in order to learn how to partner later. Yeah, but I also think, you know, self-awareness is key. Yeah. Like sometimes uh, 
you know, Nadal is a great tennis player. Uh, he doesn't play doubles. Yeah. That I know of. <laughs> yeah. Right? He's a solo player for a reason. Or, you know, and we had Russell Wilson on this show, who's the quarterback mm-hmm. now of the Denver Broncos from the Seahawks, you know, and Russ is a team player. Mm-hmm. So if you're a team player, you know, and that works for you, yeah. that could be fine. Yeah. In your model, it wasn't working. It was not. And, and you weren't getting the hint until you finally did. Yeah. I think Layla was a strong nudge there. Like, yeah. Yeah. But those are those are super good lessons for people who may not have to make them uh, the yeah. hard way. That's yeah. If if you're going and this is because I get questions like this all the time for newer entrepreneurs. It's like you know either they're in a partnership and this is how most people partner. Hey, we like each other and we kind of like the subject. Let's get into business together. Terrible reason to get into business together. Yeah. But like Y Combinator, we were talking about this off, off offline two seconds ago. Um, well, Combinator has shown that three partners, three founders is actually like the like the sweet spot. Like three to four-ish actually works the best for building huge companies. Now, that's huge companies. Not everybody's trying to build a huge company. Right. And the founders that they have have very specific roles and functions. So you've got the guy who's the you know head of coding, and then you've got the promoter who's head of sales and marketing. And then you have the operator, typically, which will be kind of the third leg of the stool, which is kind of the minimum three roles that exist. And so if you are going to partner with people, they have to have a clear role or responsibility that is different than yours. Complementary skills. 100%. Yeah. So complementary skills, aligned values. And if you are partnering, the splits don't need to be even. And that's often a common thing, which is like, okay, there's three of us, therefore we should have thirds. That isn't necessarily true. You know, like some people might be bringing a bigger network or, some, you know, other things to the table that, that tip the scales. And, and that's, you know, that's part of business. But all, all that to say, I'm not against partnerships. I, at that time, did not understand how to partner and therefore was only able to successfully have business when it was just me. Fair enough. Incredible. I mean, there's just so much there. Um, let's pivot a little bit. Uh, yeah. I want to get granular on some of this advice because, you know, again, when I started this show, it was I was sailing right into the perfect storm of the recession. Mm-hmm. Um, I got my ass handed to me mm-hmm. and then had to, you know, climb back out of the pit that I jumped into, basically. And, and I wanted this to be the solution for me, and it turned out to be exactly what I needed, mm-hmm. but also for a lot of other people. Um, what's, what's a deeply held belief that you had maybe three to five years ago? Mm-hmm. Uh, and it could be business or personal, yeah. but like something you, you really held to be true that you no longer believe. Like, do you still trust people the way that you did? Sounds like you, you, you I mean, I know nothing about psychology uh, except through my own <laughs> research and, and therapy yeah. and all that. It sounds like you had a very codependent relationship, especially with father figure in your life, right? Sure. So, but, so naturally you had this very trusting mm-hmm. uh, character. Yeah. Um, did that change over time? Do you still have uh, yeah. that strong trust? So I think that so a lot of the revelations I think came in retrospect more than were active decisions. I'd say the vast majority of the things where I, I made mistakes and stumbled into the right way and then tried to think like what was different than last time. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think one of them that you touched on is trust, but a different version of that is like the gift taken relationships. And I think that I was, I'm, I think I am naturally, like if there's a, on a scale from one to 10, like you know, one being a taker and 10 being a giver, I'm, I'm naturally a 10. Um, and 10s get run all over. Ones don't get opportunities because they're always just trying to take and people just get tired of them. The vast majority of people are tit for tatters. So you give, I give, which is like the fives. 
which is the vast majority of the population. It's transactional. Mm -hmm. And I think that what happened over my career is that I shifted from a 10 to like an eight. Um, and they've actually done a lot of game theory research on this and found that like eight out of 10 is the, is the proper amount of give take for optimal outcome. Really? Okay. So, so to be clear, you're saying you used to be a giver, I just gave all 10 out of 10, and now you've ratcheted that down to eight out of 10. Mm -hmm. And that's about the right range, you think? Yeah. You just have to know when it is your turn to take. Right. And also I would guess, because I can speak from that same experience, very relatable. I'm, I'm sort of right there with you. And I was going to ask this just for personal selfish reasons too. Sometimes I feel like I'm always the one giving. Mm -hmm. But then I, I remember that, you know, if you're truly giving without oh, yeah. the expectation of return, then you sh I shouldn't have those feelings. Right, because you know, yeah. you give it, and then if it's without expectations and it's not transactional, then yeah, you shouldn't care. You know, it's interesting because like I I spend a lot of time defining words, um, and so I think there's the like it's it's worth looking into like the, what the word give means, um, because you know what is the difference between giving and donating? Right. One would be one has no expectation of return. I would imagine with donation. Giving might not necessarily have no expectation. I don't know. Like, it's a, it, like these are the things that I jam on. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. So I don't know. I, don't, I would normally pull my phone up, but like, let's go look the word up. Well, I, I love riffing on this because um, I think it's uh, it depends on the person, and it's also it's all about intention. Yeah. It's the same reason. You know, some people give to a certain charity, mm -hmm. and they want to be known for status sure. uh, or conscience. Mm -hmm. Or maybe it's like uh, brownie points in yeah. the life after. Mm -hmm. Or maybe it's to feel good right now because yeah. you know maybe your life is trash and it's like if I do a little bit of good, yeah. it'll offset my feeling. There's lots of different you know motivations, right? Mm -hmm. um, that's very interesting. So you think that you've changed the most in the giving category? You've ratcheted it only down to an eight, though. That's still I think it's, pretty high. It's, oh, I mean, yeah. I mean, you've you've consumed some of my stuff. Like it's still very, very, very much give. Give centric. Yeah, the like, thing you say in every video is, yeah, I nothing have nothing to sell you. Yeah. So it's like, you know, the book's 99 cents, the courses are free. Like, you know, at this point, I just, I would like, and, you know, is there selfishness in the giving? Sure, I feel good. You know what I mean? It makes me feel better. I do gain status from doing it. Like, there's plenty, like, there's always ways I can pull back to being, you know, selfish. And I probably would define it rather than like giving and taking, is I think the, from a strategic perspective, I have now noticed that it's, it's give, 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 get rather than give, 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 take, or give, 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 ask is probably, I think Gary's is give, 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 ask. Um, I do prefer give, 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 get, because I think that that is that that has happened, and that might seem contrary to what I just said about 10 out of 10 givers. Um, but I can, I think the 10 out of 10 giving is giving without understanding boundaries. It's like not holding your own space. Yeah. It's like you can, like, I will give this, and I will give that because I have agreed that for me, this is something that I'm willing to give and I will give it, you know, relentlessly. But it's when you are, when you are allowing other people to take from you um, things that you were not planning on giving and then you choose to rationalize why it's okay. Right. Or like your partnerships, you know, totally screwed you and then, you know, you, you went back for more. <laughs> yeah. And I, and I, and I just qualifying, like I made, like I own those, like those were my mistakes I did not know how to structure partnerships I did not know what to look for yeah. you know and, and they were all lessons for me so I'm you know I'm grateful for the them now. well but also in your defense it seems like you have high moral character you have a, a big heart and you want to give people a second chance maybe or the benefit of the doubt at least 
Um, tell that story about the deal you did with someone who you lent money, oh. and um, and and then you invoiced them or something, yeah. and it ended up being the wrong calculation. Tell that story. Yeah. So I um I so I I, I in wholesaling. Uh, you try and get a building under contract, right? And so someone had found a really dilapidated building that they could buy from the bank, uh, I think for three million bucks. And so they called me up because they're like, we need three million dollars, but we need it tomorrow. Yeah, the bank of Alex. Right, bank of Alex. And I tend to always have a lot of cash on me. So I was like, sure. Um, and they were gonna pay a really good interest rate, which is 100,000 a month, as long as they carried the money, which is like 48% a year. So I was like, cool, I'm in. Um, and you know, from a security standpoint, it was secured against the building, which had already been valued uh, at 5.6. They already had an offer with earnest money on the table. So they'd already lined up both sides. H had you done business with this person before? No. Okay. So, so that's why that was so important. First brush. Okay. Right. Um, so they both personally guaranteed it. I was first lean on the, on the, like, this is stuff you learn over time, right? <laughs> I was first lean on the property and they had earnest money down from a new buyer. So like all my sides were more or less covered. Took all right? the risk out of it for you. Right. No brainer. So I wrote the check and then the... Uh, so my real estate lawyer, which was actually a new lawyer I was trying out, um, sent the invoice over uh, once they said, hey, we've received the funds, like we'll send it to you with the interest, whatever. And he had miscalculated the amount of interest that was supposed, that had accrued. Because they did very well on the sale. Yeah, they did. Yeah, they did. I mean, they, it was a great deal for them, right? Yeah. Um, you know, they borrowed three for, you know, they, I think, carried it for three months-ish. It was like three and a half months. So they paid 330 or 350000 in interest. They sold it for five, six on some, someone else's money. Yeah. So they made two, six minus the 300. So they made 2.3 for 90 days work. It's not a bad deal. Um, so anyways, uh, we sent the money. And, or sorry, they sent us the money on the invoice and uh, they were like, hey, thought this didn't make sense because the agreement we had was this. And so we're actually just gonna send you the correct amount, which is higher than what you invoiced us. Calculation for. was off. Yeah, so there was like, I think they, they invoiced 280 and it was 330, I think was the actual numbers. And so it was, it was down by 50 grand. And um, I obviously, you know, communicated with my lawyer that I was disappointed that he had not thought through it, but I probably should have looked better too. I just didn't think about it. Um, and he, his lawyer, the guy that sent the money had advised him to not send the extra 50 grand. He said, listen, that was his invoice, send him the money and you'll, you know, Hey, you'll make 50 grand extra. But, um, I'll try not to hit the mic. Um, he said, you know what? Like I want to do deals with Alex in the future. And this feels like a very short-sighted move. And so he sent the money and he did end up getting more goodwill from me uh, from that move. And yeah. so, you know, he was the one who ended up saying something to me when he flew out to like, we did like a celebratory dinner. Um, he said, you know, my dad always told me that you only get one name. So invest in it accordingly. And I always thought about that. I thought it was a really good line. Just like you only get one name. Like you can change your companies, you can go bankrupt, but like your name stays with you. Yeah. And so that can either be an asset or it can be a liability. Yeah. And why not have it be a huge brand, have brand power in and of itself. Yeah, it would set line like integrity is what you do when no one's looking. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And who knows, you could have been setting him up. I could have. Yeah. Right? And then what happened to that lawyer that you hired? Oh yeah, I mean, he's gone. And how about his lawyer? He's also gone. So, I mean, that's a super yeah. good lesson about, you talk a lot about in your videos, how you hire people. Yeah. Um, not based on skill per se first. It's all yeah. about moral all character. About yeah. yeah. Refresh us on what those are. So we look at, uh, 
I mean, for us, the values that we have at acquisition.com, and I think it changes by the type of company that you, that you are. Um, for, us, for us, it's unimpeachable character, sincere candor, and competitive greatness. And so those are the only three things, and we look for them pretty much in that order. So, and most people flunk the first one, so we don't have to really look for the other two. Um, but when you think about unimpeachable character, for, for me, I, I like the Navy SEALs test um, that I was told, and this may or may not be true, but I like the test either way, which was not only like, um, you know, in, in their world, it's like, will this guy give, me, give his life for me? And I'm not, that's not what I'm expecting my, my teammates to do, but bear with me. He said, but that's the ticket to entry to be, you know, in Team 6 or Navy SEAL. He said, or to be Navy SEAL. He's like, but Team 6, it's do I trust this guy with my wife when I'm not there for a long period of time? Right. Do I, if I give this guy a huge amount of money and just say, I'll be back for it, I, like, I don't know when, but I'll be back for it, yeah. will it be there 10 years later? Right. And so if you ask those types of questions, like harder questions, and the favorite one that I have from Warren Buffett that he got from a Holocaust survivor was, you know, during the Holocaust like, would this person let me in? And so I think that, like, those are hard questions, right? And I'm not saying that I'm expecting a teammate, but they give you frames on, like, how deep someone's character can go. Um, and so we try and we assume that there will be hardship in business because it is a hard game. And so that is guaranteed. And so it's just a question of when, not if. And so we try and run out the risk on teammates and portfolio companies by asking ourselves the hard questions before they are in urgent need. <laughs> Would the Alex now hire 20-something Alex under the same scrutiny? From, I would, I would probably just ask me a lot of questions. So I probably would have found that it was not. I would have noticed that he probably saw me as a father figure and was like, this is probably not healthy for this kid at this point. And given the level of ambition that I think he has, I think he will outgrow the role in a very short period of time. Um, I would either have to tie him into some sort of, you know, some, I don't know. I would have to figure something out or I would say, listen, man, I think, like, why don't we do a one-tier internship or something like that and yeah. just, like, go on your own. Um, or I would probably, you know, it, it would just really depend on what little Alex wanted. <laughs> but that, I mean, it would just be asking questions, honestly. I mean, it sounds like you're saying no, that you wouldn't hire him. It's because I know him. <laughs> and so, I, I mean, I think that, you know, some people, some people, need to be number one um and you know we look for that and if if that's a need then i would probably pass right have you been have you ever been wrong about someone's character yeah i mean like now now that you're more 100 percent. you know who's you know who's unbelievable layla girl does not miss like i am still more trusting. I am still more like, you know what, he was having a bad day. Or like, you know what, like maybe, like I still will try it. Cause I think I, I empathize a lot with people who are in difficult situations cause I have been in them and I understand the difficulty. Right. Um, Layla just doesn't give a fuck. Um, Layla just sees through people. It's crazy. Like, I mean, even, even when we like check in with our portfolio companies, like this just happened. We had a portfolio company recently. Um, we hopped on, we do, we, we check in regularly and whatnot, obviously. Um, and the CEO is on, we're like, anything to report, what's new? You know, he gives normal stuff. And we got off the call and she was like, he's not telling us something. Mm. And I was like, what? Like, you know, like, I mean, it seemed fine to me, right? And then lo and behold, we, like, we find out that there was some, there was a big problem that they hadn't told us about. And it's just like, she just like doesn't miss. Yeah. And so I, I do lean on her a lot with that stuff. So our, our single rule of marriage that's helped tremendously 
um, has just been, if we both don't agree, we don't do it. Yeah. Whatever it is, whether it's an investment, it's a hire, it's a strategic decision. I have overridden her one time. And it was uh, when I was starting Allen, the software company, which was our third company after just, so we had Jim Launch, Prestige Labs, which was our supplement company, and then we had Allen, the software company. And I really wanted to pursue this opportunity. And she didn't think it was smart given the resources and the team we had at the time. She thought they were stretched too thin, et cetera. And I, I kind of bulldozed and was like, we're doing this. And, um, and, and, it, and it blew up. I mean, we were at 1.7 million a month within like six months in that business. Um, so I felt very validated that I had made the right call. But on the longer term time horizon, she had seen that there were some flaws in the model and some things that I, I hadn't foreseen mm -hmm. that ended up you know, biting us in the, in the ass. And so um, I go back to what I said originally, which is if we, don't, if we both don't agree, and it goes the other way too. It's yeah. just I tend to be the yes guy. <laughs> yeah, that's healthy. I actually got the same advice when I got married because right. you, know, you, you either succeed together or you fail together. Right. And, and, and either one can actually be great. Yeah, it's together. You're never divided. Can I ask a personal question? Um, so do you guys have joint bank accounts? I gave her my bank accounts two weeks into dating her. Okay. So they're completely joined. Yes. And she takes care of the money because yes. she's good at that. Yeah. Okay. So you don't have separate accounts and you don't... No. You know, I don't even have a login. I don't even, I don't even know how much money we have. I really don't. I get one email from, our, from, from her EA every week that just has our balance totals between all of our assets. And that's it. And I just scroll to the bottom, I look at the number, and I'm like, cool. Yeah. She could, she could make it up for all I know. I have no idea. Right. I could be poor. I could be broke. And I could just somehow, somehow I just like live and my credit card always goes through, so I have no idea. So is she, I don't think that's true. Are, but, you, are you like, the, um, are you like the, the optimist and she's the realist? Like you, you're out there, you know, seeing the vision, what's possible, and she's like bringing you back down yeah. to earth like, hey, you know, let's get real with this. Yeah, depends on the circumstance. Depends on what we were talking about. So I think it, the subject matter matters. Um, whether it's people, whether it's friends, whether it's um, a business decision. I think, I think some of those matter, like we tend to, but I would say maybe in general, I think like with a very broad brushstroke with, with, with exceptions, um, she tends to be more uh, conservative, I would say. Yeah. And we always joke like, if, if it were only Layla, we would never have any businesses. And if it were only Alex, we'd have too many. Yeah, well, that, sim that seems you know, like complementary skills, the yin, the yang. And I'm guessing also that she doesn't like surprises or uncertainty. No, and I think we, I will say this though, I think we now over-index to both of those poles more because we know the other person exists. So like if Layla somehow were hit by a bus tomorrow and I were taking over all of our affairs, I know that I would correct towards the middle. I'd be like, I want to do this. She probably, like, I have a pretty good gut feel for what she would say yes to, but I'll still, I'll still push it just in case. And sometimes I'm surprised. I'm like, oh, you are? You do You do think this is good? Yeah. I'm like, all right, let's do it. Uh, sometimes I just throw them out there as softballs for like her to swat down so that when I, when I, uh, when I really want one, yeah. you know what I mean? I'm like, you did say no to all these other ones. I was like, so I feel like it's time. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, I love that. I almost see like a uh, little, um, a dialogue bubble, like what would Layla do? You know, it's like oh. <laughs> that runs through your calculation. Her picker is unbelievable. But like, I think we have a very like uh, Warren Buffett, Charlie Munger, uh, obviously, you know, we're married, but like Charlie always says no. Warren wants to pursue it. It's just like, I think that's it's very natural to have somebody who's going to try and pursue opportunities and somebody else who's like, is it core? Is it, does it align with where we're trying to go? Yeah. No, I, I love that story of, you know, you basically got married for business yeah. first. 100%. And and then figured out how to navigate the rest. That's super yeah. cool. Yep. Yeah. We were living together five weeks after we met. 
in motels, <laughs> in one room. Okay, Alex, here's one for you. Um, you talk about competitive advantage. How do you create competitive advantage? The easiest is just information, like just know more than the other person. And, and how do you do that? I mean, aside from... It's usually doing more and doing more research. It's both things. And a lot of times doing more is the research. So like if you think about um, every business that exists, and that's a very broad statement, but I think, I think I can back it up. Um, they all exist based on information arbitrage. One party knows more than the other party. So even if you're like, I remember I, I said this and there's a bunch of comments and they were like, well, I own a cattle ranch. How is that information arbitrage? I'm like, you know how to farm, you know how to raise steer, and yeah. you sell it to people who do not know how to do that as profitably as you do. Yeah. Like, you need. <laughs> yeah, you know how to run that business, and you know how to do it profitably, and you sell it to people who don't know how to do that. Because yeah. if they did have all the knowledge you had, then they would just do what you're doing and do what they're doing, and then they would swallow up the supply chain. And that's what vertical integration fundamentally is, is you eat up all the other aspects of the supply chain for within your vertical. Well, and information arbitrage is an interesting... And spot on, but also it makes me think um, sometimes making it more efficient or time saving is a key. Maybe, you know, all the information. I know how to get six pack abs. Okay. Okay. I just haven't done it yet. Yeah. Right. Um, so I know probably as much as you do about how to get six pack abs or, you know, or how to, you know, you know, get the guns. Yeah. Um, but. Maybe you've got a shortcut or you've got... Um, Which would mean I would know more. Yes. <laughs> yeah. You're right. But, but I say that in terms of information arbitrage between a, a, a buyer and a seller. In terms of how to create value, that's a different question. You know what I mean? Like, how do, how do, how do I communicate value to a prospect? That's, you know, the entirety of persuasion and all that other stuff. But, like, in terms of, like, how, how do we pursue opportunities... Um, which is a subject that I'm going to write a whole book about. Um, but like opportunity itself, which is just like this big word that people like to throw around, but like what is opportunity? How do you have a good opportunity versus bad opportunity? And so um, the number one YouTube that I have, a video I have on my channel is, is I, I, I touch on the topic. Um, but I see it as three variables. So you have uh, the total number of potential units to sell, which some people call TAM, right? Total adjustable market. But how many, how many units of this widget could I potentially sell? Number one. Number two is... What is the value to uh, cost discrepancy? So how much profit can I potentially make solving this particular problem? And then number three is what are the competitive dynamics within that marketplace? So uh, an example that has two of the three would be like, what if I wanted to sell cell phone service? Lots of people need it. The, how much it costs me to add an additional customer is very, very low. So very high gross margins. But what are the competitive dynamics? Well, there's a lot of really entrenched players. It's very hard to get into that, yeah. right? And so when I'm looking at an opportunity, I want to see all three. Now, the, the difficulty with using those three is that that equation can evolve over time. And so if you're starting a business right now, you might not have, you know, sell something that everyone in the world can buy, right? Actually, there's probably not many things that everyone in the world can buy. Um, I was talking to a, uh, they, they sold Kangen water. It's like a, it's like alkaline water. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I was talking about their TAM and they're like, everybody, everybody drinks water. I was like, yeah, but no one's buying a $2,000 water machine. So the TAM isn't everybody. It's people who are foo-foo enough to buy $2,000 water machines, which is a much smaller, of the 7 billion people on earth where 80% of them don't have internet, I don't think your TAM is as big as you think it is, right? And so, um, but as you get into business, you learn more. And then you realize that you can expand your market in one way or another. And I could get into how the different ways you can expand your market, but yeah, give us a little taste. Because yeah, yeah. So, I, I, the one thing I remember from maybe one of the things that you taught me was to think about 
uh, the scalability of things. Uh -huh. Yeah, 100%. And the scalability comes, uh, there's the entrepreneur component, which is like, you know, skills, traits, beliefs, which we can hit that if you want. Um, but then there's the scalability of the, of the deliverable, which is like, how do I create a double deliverable that is more scalable? When I, if you think about my trajectory, <clears throat> I first got in shape that, and I had a job, right? And then I, uh, started selling fitness services because that was a skill that I learned. And then I got other people to do fitness services for me. So this is all levels of leverage. So like opportunity is just a fancy word for leverage. Um, and then after that, I sold licensing, which was with, with media, right? So my cost of incremental, uh, my incremental costs were basically zero, right? Every new customer was very low for me to, to didn't cost me much to add them, right? Compared to how much money I can make from them. And so with the different business, you know, the different iterations of fundamentally the same skill set, I knew how to get people in shape. That was the skill set, right? I added in learning how to market, learning how to sell. And those were things that added value, right? And that was when we get into the, the entrepreneur skills, traits, beliefs, like that was from that side, but that is why I was able to climb the opportunity ladder and gain more leverage on the opportunity that I was pursuing. Um, and with regards to how do you in increase your, your total adjustable market, like, so there's four ways to increase it. There's five ways to adjust it. So um, the first four are the same. Don't worry. The fifth one's just the last one. So you can go up market, which means you're selling to bigger versions of the same thing. So let's say I was helping hair salon owners. I could help people who have chains of hair salons, or I could help franchisors or licensors of hair salons. It'd be much, a much smaller demo, but they'd be much bigger clients. It'd be enterprise, right? I could go down market, which would be selling smaller versions, which would be like I could, I could sell hairstylists. Right? If I want to go down market from there, people who aspire to be hairstylists, right? So it's like a pyramid. Um, so you go up market, you can go down market. You can go adjacent market, which is what's similar to hairstylists that probably has similar wants and needs. So it'll probably be like a lash salon or yeah, nail salon or something. Nail yeah. salon, yeah, exactly. So that would be an adjacent market. Um, or I could go broader. So broader is where you take all adjacent markets under one umbrella, which would be beauty. Right, so it'd be like, I help all beauty type brick and mortar businesses, right? That would be going broader. And so those are the four ways you can increase the total addressable market of whatever thing that you're serving. The fifth is you can go narrower. So I say that you can increase it four ways. The fifth is you go narrower, you get more, more specific about the constraints that you apply to the requisites to become a customer. The reason that most times with businesses that I take on in the portfolio, it's actually the first step we do is we actually narrow it most times. And it's because they, are, they don't even know who they serve and they don't know who they serve best. And so when you're starting out, one of the best practices you can do um, is, uh, the fancy word is a common factor analysis, but basically what, is, what do all the best clients we have have in common? So if we take 100 clients and we look at the top 20%, because there's Pareto, they're probably responsible for 80% of the revenue anyways. We look at that 20%, we say, what do they all have in common? And then what if we only sold that amount of people and we sold now the same 100, but they were all of that 20%? Right. Well, we would 5X our revenue. Same operational drag, because it's the same size company, mm -hmm. but we're selling better customers. Yeah. And most people, you know, I, I get on with entrepreneurs all the time, and they're like, I think I've saturated my market. And I'm like, all right, what's your, what are your, what's your revenue? They're like, two million bucks a year. I'm like, okay. Well, <laughs> the market you're serving is a $60 billion industry, and you are making $2 million a year. A little room to grow. Do you feel, yeah, it's like, do you feel like, it, like you might be premature, or you just don't know how to get more customers? They're like, well, I guess I don't know how to get more customers. Like, that's a problem that's solvable. So let's solve that, right? And so then we can we can we can break down. There's a million ways to get customers. So I can break that down too if you yeah, want. Yeah. Is, <laughs> is there a certain type of business or industry that you gravitate to yeah, for the acquisition? What is yeah. Yeah. So we work with uh, business services, consumer services, ideally businesses that are e-learning, course. Like I love licensing models. So I love 
um, low overhead. Yeah, low high cash. Yeah, yeah, exactly. High and, margin. Yep. And the problems that those companies typically have, and we take them on usually between three and ten million, is when we like in top line sales is when we start working with them. The problems that they usually have is that it's too founder led. It's too personality brand driven. They don't have enough customer lifetime value, as in they sell something one time and they can't get people to keep buying. They can't get people to stick. They have high churn, um, but they typically have high cash flow. But it's very dependent on usually one or maybe two channels of acquisition. And so we will kind of lay out our five-year plan to getting them from basically a company that has almost no value to getting to like 30 to 50, maybe $100 million in enterprise value. Um, and a company that has multiple acquisition streams, has an extended LTV. The LTV allows us to have all these different acquisition channels, but yeah. we, it depends on the, or, like the order in which we solve them depends on the business. Yeah. Uh, you, what did you have to pay for the domain acquisition.com? Was it expensive? Yeah, it was 400 grand. Oh yeah, not that bad actually. Yeah, I, know. I looked at marketing.com, it was 5.6. Million. Okay. I yeah. thought about that. I told Layla, I sent her a proposal. I, I, I never email. I don't email. I don't check email. If anyone ever emails me, I, don't, I won't read it. So just letting you know. Um, and I literally sent a proposal. I was like, so I was thinking. Um, so I, I price anchored with marketing.com. And then I was like, we could also get acquisition.com, which is 400 grand. She was like, well, that seems much more reasonable because yeah. I anchored 5.6. But, that was smart. Um, but marketing.com, I still sometimes think about because. Uh, I do like that. I like that domain. But the thing is, is the reason I ended up doing acquisition wasn't even for the money. It was because the type of, of, of people and portfolio companies that I am looking for use the word acquisition. Mm -hmm. Like people who don't know business, not don't know, but like everyone knows what the word marketing means or thinks they know what the word marketing right. means. Right. It's a little bit more um, general. Right. People who are trying to scale their companies talk about cost of acquisition. And so it also had the double entendre of we, you know, acquire minority, you know, uh, stakes in the companies in addition to helping with acquisition. Yeah. So I kind of like that component too. Yeah, four hundred grand. I mean, it seems like a steal because yeah. I think I was like five or six years ago, Zuckerberg bought FB.com for like eight million dollars or something like that. Right. Just like probably also a great deal. Yeah. In in retrospect, yeah. 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 Interesting. All right, I got a, I got a couple more zings. Yeah. Um, I'm telling you, I could I could sit. Uh, I could sit for hours. Um, I, I think a lot of people want to know this, the answer to this next question, which is, what is the fastest road to financial freedom? You talk about everything you're doing on YouTube. I have nothing to sell. I'm doing it to help people who you know are broke. Yeah. You've got, uh, assuming, 10 plus million dollars sitting in the bank today. Maybe, thanks to Layla, closer to 15, I'm guessing. Oh, um, I have way more than that. Okay. In, ca in, in cash. Way more than that. Okay. Uh, and talk about that too. Like why, why Mostly cash because I think so... everything's really fluffy right now. Yeah. So I mean, I, I sold three companies last year and a house and two cars. So I sold everything last year. Okay, yeah. So you're, you're looking at what's happening, mm -hmm. predicting. There's inflated pricings. I mean, a lot of people are really afraid of inflation and I think that's super warranted. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I think it's just like, that's a purely like... This is like looking at Uncle Warren, right? He's got 150 billion in cash sitting right now. He's not worried about it. I'm like, hmm, he's seen more cycles than I have. Right. So he's got 25% of his entire company value sitting in cash. Like he's waiting. And so... And that means it's, I mean, to be clear, it's not working for you. It's not earning, uh, I mean, it's earning a yeah. tiny amount of interest yeah, money market, compared to what you could have in yeah. stocks or yeah. investment properties. Mm -hmm. So a little inflation is not going to kill me, um, but like when you look at the Nasdaq during the, the crash in whatever 01 or whatever the year was, um, it dropped by seventy eight percent 
Right. So that would be significant. It would be significant. Yeah. Um, and so I'm. I think. I think. Just given the timing, I'm willing to wait a little bit and see what's going on. Um, and I also am very close to a transaction, so I'm not going to like immediately allocate all the money. That sounds like a bad idea. Um, and so that is why I have more cash than I probably would normally. Yeah. Do you see yourself coming? Like, do you see see yourself? They talk about this scarcity mindset. Mm-hmm. Do you think that's rooted maybe in your family story, which is you know your your dad basically had to reinvent himself as the doctor coming over from a different country? I don't think he has scarcity mindset. I don't think so. He's. I mean, wasn't that the reason he was worried about you choosing this path? Is because I don't he know thought, if it was scarcity. I think it was fear. I don't think they're necessarily the same thing. The fear of losing was, anything, right? Like fear of not being able to provide or of not being successful. I mean, I think my dad was afraid of what me being a failure would reflect on him. I don't think it had anything to do with scarcity. I think it just like he was afraid that it would look bad on him. Gotcha. So then back to the quickest road to financial freedom. Mm-hmm. I think it. I think. I mean, the first answer that can't, like the bullet, like the quick answer was knowing thyself, right? Which is a lot of people, because right now entrepreneurship's cool, it won't be cool in a few years when everyone loses everything. Um, and so that'll probably, it'll probably calibrate a little bit. Yeah. Um, and so I think it's just, it's just the one thing that you can always protect yourself with that, and this is something that I have learned from my, you know, Iranian family, is, you know, when, when the revolution happened in Iran, we talk about legacy. Lands, buildings, houses, bank accounts. Government just says those are ours now. Mm-hmm. That's it. There's your legacy. Gone. So that's why I'm like, and people are like, I want to build a legacy. I'm like, US might not even be the superpower in five hundred years. Your kids your kids might be in, in, in Bangladesh. Who knows? India might yeah. be the the hot spot in five hundred. No one knows, right? And so that was a touch on legacy. But skills are the only thing that we'll always appreciate in time and work in compound compound in concert so when they work together if you know how to do math then you can learn how to do accounting if you learn how to do accounting you can learn how to do tax work if you learn how to do tax work you can figure out how insurance works if your insurance works then you all of a sudden you're a cfo and you can prepare companies for sale like the skills stack on top of each other and specialized skills are valuable independent of the currency or the economic climate and so if you are good you will always have a place to provide value because people want good stuff Prices may vary, currencies may vary, but people will want the things you have if you are good. And the only way to get good is to work. And so I think that a lot of people spend a lot of their time in paralysis trying to figure out what the quote ideal opportunity would be when you won't know what the ideal opportunity is because you don't have a baseline. And I believe that research is done through doing. And you learn a lot more by doing stuff in action and then you will gain the insights of where the opportunities lie. Which is why why Combinator comes up again what they look for in past founders, one of their criteria for a successful business is past experience in the industry. So, and that can be, I just wrote a tiny blurb about this in the book that I'm writing, that can be tangential. Like if your dad owned a mechanic shop or was a mechanic, you probably know a lot more about cars than you, than like you, to you it seems obvious, but like, I don't know anything about cars, nothing. Nor do I really have the interest. But like, if you wanted to get in the space, you probably have some level of knowledge. Some people look at just the whole world and they're like, I don't know anything, but this is maybe a good, like, but I think it's better to have some level because usually we have learned stuff in our lives, whether we like it or not. And starting in the, in, in every industry that your parents, your cousins, you worked in, there was massive opportunity. It just depends on how you structure it, right? So like, let's say my first job was, I was a blender tender at Smoothie King. It's the first job I got. Blender tending, not a very good opportunity. 
right? I'm probably not going to scale that. <laughs> Managing there, probably not either. Owning the owning the the location, a little bit more leverage because now I have leverage on labor, right? Owning the franchise, much more, mm-hmm. right? And so like. Th- all industries, if you go high enough up, and this is the rule of thumb for anyone, if you want to see where, where opportunity exists, look at the businesses that have been here the longest mm-hmm. because they make tons of money. The only reason they would exist is because they can, they can exist during downturns. The only way you can exist during downturn is you make tons of profits all the time so that you can weather it. Like JP Morgan's been here for longer than anybody's been alive, right? Some of the big insurance companies. Why is insurance so profitable? Because you pay them for nothing. Like pay hundreds of, I mean, depends on what, like you pay thousands and thousands and thousands a year for something that may never happen. And they just know how to appropriately value risk, Mm -hmm. assess risk, excuse me. And so wonderful business, right? Insurance. Um, And so the, the, the point is, is like, I've now learned to see this as like, when I see big businesses, the bigger the business, the more I realize that there's probably a very high gross margin opportunity. So you look at the biggest companies on the stock market, look at what they're doing. The base unit that they're selling typically has tremendous, like the biggest company in the world right now in terms of profit is like Exxon. That's number one in terms of net free cash flow that's created. Isn't that crazy? Like people are like Facebook, no, it's, it's Exxon. Why? Because they drill water out of the ground and they sell it for however many hundred dollars per, yeah. right? It's not water, it's oil, but it works the same way, right? right? And so, and that's a, a massive overgeneralization, but like you get the idea. Yeah. And so. Facebook sells eyeballs, which cost them basically nothing. Google sells eyeballs, which cost them basically nothing. And so all of these types of businesses, and this is where people get into the ethics around capitalism and whatnot, but like you sell for what the market values it at, period. And your goal as a business is to drive your cost down as much as you can, right? As long as you're still long-term greedy, which is if you drive them too low or you don't pay people well enough, you introduce new levels of risk, which then long-term you actually lose money. So that's when you get into the long-term, short-term like CEO-ship of uh, publicly traded companies and stuff, which we don't need to get into. But like, if you, if you were to only own the company and you could not ever exit and you made your decisions with long-term greed in mind, um, then you usually make the right calls. And I'll say one last thing about the how to, how to get freedom. Biggest mistake that I see young people or people who are young in the game making is that they want to become millionaires in 90 days. And when most times you could guarantee that you could become a millionaire in a decade, but you have to be willing to not be a millionaire for nine of those 10 years. And if I had everyone sign a contract that said that when they were 20, they could all be millionaires when they're 30. But no one's willing to do that. And so what happens is for the rest of their lives, they keep chasing the shiny object over and over again and keep battling the same boss and losing. So you're talking about taking a $1,000 paycheck and taking 300 of it and putting it into savings yeah. and living on less, yeah. living That's under right. your means. Yeah for nine years and that compounds and that, yeah. you know. I mean, there's the investment side and I, I'm not, I'm not uh, despite having a high net worth, I'm not uh, an Uber investor. I've made my money with businesses. I haven't made my money investing. Um, and so for people who are starting out, the know thyself piece is, am I going to be somebody who has entrepreneurial tendencies and could potentially own a business? Business ownership is the best way to create wealth. It's also the best way to lose wealth. <laughs> so, which I hopefully illustrated at the beginning of this. Um, and so it's high risk, it's high reward. And so, yes, it is the way to, it is the way to the most wealth. It may not necessarily be, be the way to the fastest wealth. So like if you're, like I think most, most guys who have entrepreneurial tendencies could, could make 200,000 a year, 300,000 a year, becoming excellent at sales. Like if you just learn that skill, and that skill translates to all aspects of life. Right. Um, anyone who's in it, most people who are in business know how to sell. 
at some level. They know how to sell investors, they know how to sell their teams, they know how to sell someone to recruit to bring on the, like you have to sell. And so um, I think for most people gaining that, I think, I think those initial jobs are undervalued um, for your ability to learn. And so a lot of guys are just looking for the perfect job when the perfect job is the assembly of maybe three or four jobs that you have to, to gain skill sets in different areas. And I think Warren Buffett said it best, that's probably a good wrap up, which is whenever you're working, you should either be learning or earning. So either you're, you're working for the paycheck because it's, it's, it's material to you, or you're working because the, the incremental increase in knowledge is material to you, but it should check one of those two boxes. So this show is called Behind the Brand. Um, what do you think the definition of a brand is and, and how do you build a brand? So I see brand as reputation and I see reputation as what people say about you when you're not there. Mm -hmm. So that is your brand. I think a lot of people take a lot of time to try and build their brand, um, but I think you build your brand inside out. So what is the Alex Ramosi brand? Well, I mean, I would say it's aligned with the values that we have. You know, it's unimpeachable character, sincere candor. I try and be honest with as, as much as I possibly can. I try and do the right thing as much as I possibly can. Um, and competitive greatness, like, like within the rules, like we will play and we'll play to win. And uh, I don't need to know your current net worth. I'm, sh I'm sure you shared it. Uh, yeah, we're about 100. Yeah. And so... So you're going to say that, right? Well, so do you have your sights on a particular goal? Are you yeah. trying to get to a billion or... Yeah, so I have two, I have two, two goals on the horizon. Um, the first goal is to get Layla on the Forbes 100 for self-made richest women. Um, so we only have to have 250 million to get her there. So that's, that's like, the, like the immediate goal. Okay. Um, How far away is that? Is that 150? I mean, like, is it a year away? Is it? No, I think I think realistically, I think we'll get there in like 36 months. Yeah, um, yeah, I think we'll get there in 36 months. The the the, the you know the next goal would would be uh, would be billion, and that's just because like if you look at how the high, this is actually kind of funny for anyone who's curious, uh, the way net worth is broken up is you have uh, high net worth, very high, so high net worth is one to five million in assets, investable assets. Uh, very high net worth is five to 30 million mm -hmm. in investable assets. And then 30 to a billion, big range, is ultra high net worth. Right. And then above a billion is a billionaire. Those are the four, those are the four net worth categories that exist, right? right? And so, um, that, so that for me, it's like we're all trying net worth now. And so, you know, getting to the billion, I guess, is the next thing. Um, but all the while, we realize that we're doing it for no real reason other than for the love of the game and because the mission of the company, and so like if you talk about brand, I told you about our values, but the mission is to document and share the best practices of building world-class companies. And so that's why we make the books, that's why we make the YouTube, that's why we make the courses, that's why education will be a core to everything we do. Yeah. Um, because that's the, what we're doing also, that matters most to us. Let me ask you a follow-up question, which is why is that Forbes 100 list important to you for her, or is it her goal? I think it's, it's more, it's definitely my goal. For why, why is that important to you? I think it's cool. I think like, for really no other, like I think it's cool. Yeah, I mean it's a vanity metric. Sure. Yeah, I think it's, it's a cool. trophy. Yeah. Why not be awesome? Like that'd be cool. Yeah. yeah. And I think that's good. That's a good enough reason, because it'd be cool. Okay. Okay. Um, final parting words of advice. Dan Sullivan said something that I really like. He said, "Wanting something is reason enough." 
a lot of people trying to ask you to justify why. Why do you want that? Why do you want to date that girl? Why do you want to start that business? Because I want to. Like, that is the reason. I want to. Yeah. Or maybe because you can. Yeah. <laughs> what was the last question you said? Uh, final parting words of advice. Oh, parting words of advice. Um, You're writing this new book. Maybe let's ramp into it that way. So the last book, you know, yeah. you sort of left off um, where some of your last videos are. Give us a preview into what the next chapter is, what the next book is about. So the next book tentatively is titled $100 Million Leads uh, because most people had to fix their offers, which is the title of which is $100 Million Offers was the first book, which is what are you actually going to present to a customer in order to get them to give you money. Um, the second thing that happens after people have that and people start giving them money is they want more. And so they want more people to present to. And so they need more leads. And so the subject of that, the title of the book is leads, but the subject of the book is advertising, um, which by the definition is to make known. So how to make known. So you've made a shift recently, which is, you know, you used to basically buy leads or buy advertising. So, you know, ad advertising by definition is to spend money to make known, right? By definition, it's to make known. Not to spend money, just because it's a it's a it's an important point. That's fair. Uh, my interpretation is there's two paths. There's there's direct marketing mm -hmm. or direct response, mm -hmm. advertising, and then there's branding. Mm -hmm. And I, I think I've heard you say that you're more if you were eighty twenty advertising mm -hmm. or uh, direct marketing before, you are mm -hmm. now flipped the script yeah. and you're more into branding. Why did you do that, and why do you think that's better now? Because you're more established, you have the money in the bank, you've done the business. I think that having the money in the bank enables more branding. Right. And so I actually think that branding is a higher return on advertising over a longer time horizon. Me too. And so it just takes longer to come to fruition. And if you are patient and have money, it's by far the superior strategy. Right. But when you don't have money, you need to make money today to pay for, for, for your advertising in general, whatever those efforts are right. to make known. Um, than, than having a direct response. So I think, I think people do end up shifting over time from, like Seth Godin is famous for being a hardcore direct response marketer and then being all about branding now. Gary Vee was you know, more direct response, yeah. built, on, built the wine library on PPC from Google, is more about branding. And I feel like I've, I've, I've made a similar transition, but I think you have to like, it's almost like you have to discover it yourself rather than be told it. Like it doesn't, it has to become real for you and then it has to click. And so for me, I feel like branding has clicked in terms of how, my understanding of its value overall. Um, it is more difficult to measure, but it is absolutely, like when you look at Louis Vuitton and you know Bernard Arnault, who's the, who's the owner, right? He's worth 150 billion or whatever it is now. He's the only one who's not a tech guy who's all at the top of that list. And it's because he's built a brand. He's able to sell a purse that cost him $100 for $8,000. Right. Simply because of a brand. And that's like, so what is his return on, on advertising? Probably higher than people who are at the hardcore direct response, you know, funnel, you know, upsell, downsell, blah, 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 like disc, you know, buy two purses for one off. Like that's direct response. Whereas it could just, you know, branding could just be a picture of LeBron with a, with a LeBron, with a Louis Vuitton handbag or whatever. Yeah. You know what I mean? I mean, so your opinion, you're, you're right, aligned with, with what I've heard from everyone else. And I had this conversation with Seth many yeah, times. Yeah, did you? Okay, yeah. Yeah. And, and he, said, um, he said a lot of good things. He said, well, I, I said that uh, direct response is sort of like the tortoise and the hare. Like, mm -hmm. So it's the, the hare's race is the advertising or the direct response. And you're right. Sometimes you need to fill the funnel. 
because uh, you got to keep the lights on, or, or you're you know you're bleeding out three thousand dollars a day, and you got to get those leads yeah. that convert to sales. Um, and then if you can do branding, it's like the tortoise's race, slow and steady, but it ends up winning the race. And he said, you know, um, if if you want to know whether or not you have a brand or not, um, you know, people will pay extra a premium for a brand. Yeah. And he said, if you go into most hotels and you, you know, don't look at the marquees, look at the carpet around the walls, if you don't know where you are, you can't smell it, you can't see it, you can't taste it, then you don't have a brand, you have a logo. Mm -hmm. And uh, a brand is, you know, he used the example of Nike in this story. He goes, you know, if Nike built a hotel, mm -hmm. you could kind of imagine what that might look like or smell like or feel like. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the same goes for yeah, our personal brands, yeah, yeah. but our personal brands too, right? If we're building empires like Gary is, yeah. you can imagine what Gary's, you know, next thing could look like yeah. or Alex's next thing is probably going to have, you know, arms, sleeves cut off. <laughs> so there's room for the arms to grow or at least legs. Are you a leg guy? Yeah, I think so. <laughs> so then back to the quickest road to financial freedom. Mm -hmm. I think it, I think I mean, the first answer that can't, like the bullet, like the quick answer was knowing thyself, right? Which is a lot of people, because right now entrepreneurship's cool, it won't be cool in a few years when everyone loses everything. Um, and so that'll probably, it'll probably calibrate a little bit. Yeah. Um, and so I think it's just, it's just the one thing that you can always protect yourself with that, and this is something that I have learned from my, you know, Iranian family, is, you know, when, when the revolution happened in Iran, we talk about legacy. Lands, buildings, houses, bank accounts. Government just says, those are ours now. Mm -hmm. That's it. There's your legacy. Gone. So that's why I'm like, and people are like, I want to build a legacy. I'm like, U.S. might not even be the superpower in 500 years. Your kids, your kids might be in, in, in Bangladesh. Who knows? India might yeah. be the, the hot spot in 500. No one knows, right? And so that was a touch on legacy. But skills are the only thing that we'll always appreciate in time. And work and compound compound in concert so when they work together if you know how to do math then you can learn how to do accounting if you learn how to do accounting you can learn how to do tax work if you learn how to do tax work you can figure out how insurance works if your insurance works then you all of a sudden you're a cfo and you can prepare companies for sale like the skills stack on top of each other and specialized skills are valuable independent of the currency or the economic climate and so if you are good you will always have a place to provide value because people want good stuff Prices may vary, currencies may vary, but people will want the things you have if you are good. And the only way to get good is to work. And so I think that a lot of people spend a lot of their time in paralysis trying to figure out what the quote ideal opportunity would be when you won't know what the ideal opportunity is because you don't have a baseline. And I believe that research is done through doing. And you learn a lot more by doing stuff in action and then you will gain the insights of where the opportunities lie. Which is why why Combinator comes up again what they look for in past founders, one of their criteria for a successful business is past experience in the industry. So, and that can be, I just wrote a tiny blurb about this in the book that I'm writing, that can be tangential. Like if your dad owned a mechanic shop or was a mechanic, you probably know a lot more about cars than you, than like you, to you it seems obvious, but like, I don't know anything about cars, nothing. Nor do I really have the interest. But like if you wanted to get in the space, you probably have some level of knowledge. Some people look at just the whole world and they're like, I don't know anything, but this is maybe a good, like, but I think it's better to have some level because usually we have learned stuff in our lives, whether we like it or not. Yeah. And starting in the, in, in every industry, 
that your parents, your cousins, you worked in, there was massive opportunity. It just depends on how you structure it, right? So like, let's say my first job was, I was a blender tender at Smoothie King. It's the first job I got. Blender tending, not a very good opportunity, right? I'm probably not gonna scale that, right? Managing there, probably not either. Owning the, owning the, the location, a little bit more leverage because now I have leverage on labor, right? Owning the franchise, much more, mm-hmm. right? And so like th- all industries, if you go high enough up, and this is the rule of thumb for anyone, if you wanna see where, where opportunity exists, look at the businesses that have been here the longest mm-hmm. because they make tons of money. The only reason they would exist is because they can, they can exist during downturns. The only way you can exist during downturn is you make tons of profits all the time so that you can weather it. Like JP Morgan's been here for longer than anybody's been alive. Right, some of the big insurance companies. Why is insurance so profitable? Because you pay them for nothing. Right. <laughs> like pay hundreds of, th- I mean, it depends on what, it, like you pay thousands and thousands and thousands a year for something that may never happen. And they just know how to appropriately value risk. Mm-hmm. Assess risk, excuse me. And so, wonderful business, right? Insurance. Um, and so the, the, the point is, is like, I've now learned to see this as like, when I see big businesses, the bigger the business, the more I realize that there's probably a very high gross margin opportunity. So you look at the biggest companies on the stock market, look at what they're doing. The base unit that they're selling typically has tremendous, like the biggest company in the world right now in terms of profit is like Exxon. That's the number one in terms of net free cash flow that's created. Isn't that crazy? Like people are like Facebook, no, it's, it's Exxon. Why? Because they drill water out of the ground and they sell it for however many hundred dollars per. Yeah. Right? It's not water, it's oil, but it works the same way. Right? right? And so, and that's a, a massive overgeneralization, but like you get the idea. Yeah. And so Facebook sells eyeballs, which cost them basically nothing. Google sells eyeballs, that cost them basically nothing. And so all of these types of businesses, and this is where people get into the ethics around capitalism and whatnot, but like you sell for what the market values it at, period. And your goal as a business is to drive your cost down as much as you can, right? As long as you're still long-term greedy, which is if you drive them too low or you don't pay people well enough, you introduce new levels of risk, which then long-term you actually lose money. So that's when you get into the long-term, short-term, like CEO-ship of uh, publicly traded companies and stuff, which we don't need to get into. But like, if you, if you were to only own the company and you could not ever exit and you made your decisions with long-term greed in mind, um, then you usually make the right calls. And I'll say one last thing about the how to, how to get freedom. Biggest mistake that I see young people or people who are young in the game making is that they want to become millionaires in 90 days. And when most times you could guarantee that you could become a millionaire in a decade, but you have to be willing to not be a millionaire for nine of those 10 years. And if I had everyone sign a contract that said that when they were 20, they could all be millionaires when they're 30. But no one's willing to do that. And so what happens is for the rest of their lives, they keep chasing the shiny object over and over again and keep battling the same boss and losing. I mean, we were just sitting back, you know, <laughs> chopping it up, reminiscing about the good old days and all that. <laughs> you know, tracking my roots, where I came from and where I'm going. But like I say, man, always said it. It's not about the destination. It's all about the journey. Ain't nothing changed but the weather. 
the dangling carrot that hang from the rear view. Uh -huh. Your dreams in the past ain't nowhere near you. Backseat drivers got nothing but two cents. Shotgun riders too biased, they all liars. I should get an A for effort, I'm too tired. But I'm never giving up, that's why I'm kinda admired. Role model, like it or not, I gotta play it. Sugarcoat the rhyme sometimes, but still say it. Said I was quitting at 40, is just a fib.